Hello, listeners, and welcome to a special director interview episode of Criterion Cast. My name is David Blakesley, and for those of you who found this podcast through our usual feed, you probably recognize my voice as host of the Criterion Reflections podcast and also just a frequent general contributor here to CriterionCast.com. For those of you who may have discovered this episode through other means, maybe I'll have a little bit more to say about my podcast and our network uh, a little bit later on in the episode. But I want to get right to the main event here, which is an interview that I'll be having with director Matthew Gentile. He is the director and writer for a film that's coming out streaming on demand as of October 28th, 2022, of a film, American Murderer. This is a true crime drama set in the american southwest that took place in the, these events took place in 2004 or 5 and it's a story that even is kind of unresolved to this day a fascinating uh, character study of a, uh, a somewhat sociopathic con man and i'm going to give matthew a chance to say a little bit more about this project uh, how it came together and just uh, you know what it's uh, what it's like putting a putting a feature film together at this day and age uh, there's some interesting making of stories that I know he's got to tell about the film. So, Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be able to talk to you tonight. How's it going? David, thank you so much for having me. I am such a fan of this podcast. I'm a frequent listener. And uh, my friend Robert Taylor, who's been on your podcast multiple times, turned me on to it. So thank you for having me and for all the great work you do in preserving film and keeping, keeping bringing art house films and foreign films to people's attention. Yeah, well, I definitely have enjoyed getting to know Robert. I uh, had a chance to meet him a few years ago when I was traveling out his way. And yeah, he and I uh, have had some recent conversations. I'm really glad that he uh, helped facilitate this uh, connection here. Looking forward to uh, f hearing more about the project. I've already had a chance to chat with you a little bit offline and uh, seem like a cool guy. And I'm very intrigued to hear what you have to say about uh, American Murderer. So why don't you just go ahead and give us a little introduction to the film and uh, we'll just get the conversation rolling from there. For sure. Um, so American Murderer is a true crime drama, as you said, about Jason Derrick Brown, a charismatic con man who became the FBI's most unlikely and elusive top 10 fugitive. Um, and so the film is, as you mentioned, a character study about a somewhat sociopathic con man. Um, and it really tells the story of his life and how he became who he was and the crimes he committed and the people he loved and the people who loved him. So, you know, on the surface, you know, this movie is a cat and mouse thriller starring Tom Pelfrey as Jason Derrick Brown, who I think gives an incredible performance. Brian Holliday, um as Lance Lysing, the special agent hunting him. Adina Menzel, Jackie Weaver, uh, Paul Schneider, Chantal Van Santen, Moises Arias, and Kevin Corrigan. So, you know, we have a really great cast um, in this first feature of mine. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's set to come out October 21st in theaters and October 28th on, on digital and demand. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to answer any questions you have about it. Yeah. So, well, let's just talk a little bit about this background story. Now, you know, I was not really familiar with the details of the case, but people who maybe are a little bit deeper into true crime probably maybe recognize the name. Like you say, he's been on the FBI's most wanted list since around, what, 2007. And, yep. and ironically enough, was just earlier this month, we're recording uh, at the end of September 2022, but just earlier this month, they finally removed him from the list after Correct. so many years, 15 years or more of, of just not being able to 
get get the drop on this guy. So uh, <laughs> his elusiveness is sort of part of the legend here, but uh, he's a pretty memorable character, certainly in the uh, in that incredible performance. I thought by Tom Pelfrey, uh, so much hinges on what he brings to that role. Uh, tell us just a little bit more about Jason Derrick Brown. Well, the story came into my life at a pretty unconventional time. Uh, the crime mm. happened in 2004 when I was 14 years old. Um, and, you know, at that time I was very, I was, I used to have an interest in crime, criminals, outlaws, sure. cops, mm-hmm. you know, I was not a kid into Pokemon or, uh, <laughs> you know, Dungeons and Dragons. I was into, you know, outlaws and gangsters and that was kind of my thing. So, um, you know, my interest in film goes back to a young age. I saw Dog Day Afternoon when I was 12. My father showed it to me <laughs> and okay, quickly yeah. became my favorite film. I even was mm. sunny for Halloween, which didn't really go over well, but <laughs> I, um, but I became obsessed with those kinds of movies, you know, about the anti-heroes mm-hmm. and then film noir came along and, you know, my palate kind of grew. But when I was 14, I learned about Jason Derrick Brown because I used to go on the FBI's uh, website, FBI.gov, hmm. because I thought that my 14 year old self, before I wanted to be a filmmaker, I wanted to be an FBI agent. And I thought that at age 14, I could, you know, go on the list and see the fugitives and see if I could help the FBI catch one, maybe get some reward money. Um, <laughs> sure. And so Jason came up on the list. Yeah. Around 2000, he wasn't on the top 10 list yet, but he was on the FBI's fugitives list in, in around 2004. And I remembered his picture really struck me. Um, the picture of a surfer dude with spiky blonde hair, blue eyes. He looks a lot like Sean Penn from fast mm-hmm. times at Richmond high actually to the point where in the 18 years, Jason has been missing. Sean Penn's body double has been arrested twice. <laughs> arrested so, actually wow that's a mistaken serious identity. mistaken identity right? well yeah. because jason for the longest time got more tips than any other fugitive which the end credit of the film kind of indicates mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but he got more tips than any other fugitive because his look was was a normal southern california dude so people would mistake him a lot there's a lot of mistaken identity going on they get false tips the fbi a lot especially in the in the early years less so now but back then they were and so the face struck me. And I remember because, you know, you look at the FBI's top 10 list and it's not a normal look list of guys. <laughs> you know, you have Osama bin Laden and Whitey Bulger, like really mean, menacing looking faces or like, you know, high class criminals. And Jason's face and likeness just stood out to me as different from the pack. But no mm-hmm. intellectual reason why, you know, that just I remembered the face, you know, come to 12 years later, I was just out of film school at AFI, you know, finding my way through the world, trying to figure out what my first feature film was. I had the luxury of some of my short films were quite well received and doing well in the festival circuit. So I had a lot of people asking me like, what's your first movie? What's your first feature? And I had some, you know, false starts on a couple different projects, but ultimately one day I was storyboarding for a shoot. Um, I was shooting a commercial and I was storyboarding and I, I always have documentaries playing in the background, often true crime ones. Um, and the American greed came on the television on CNBC and all of a sudden Jason's face just popped on my television. Mm. Boom. And I hadn't seen kind re reestablish that connection from your youth there. And there he is again. Yeah. Yeah. It just all of a sudden came rushing back and I was like, is that guy still missing? And I watched the program. I watched, you know, the story unfold through and the, the program interviewed people who knew him and who mm-hmm. loved him and, and, and who were hunting him and all that stuff. And I just became completely obsessed to the mm-hmm. point where I was thinking about it, you know, like all the time I was like, 
I wonder if that could be a film. How could that be a screenplay? And so at first I thought it might be too ambitious for a first feature. So my feeling was maybe just write the script and see what happens. Um, Maybe try to sell the script or something like that. But as I started to write it and research it and meet people who knew him and talk to them and all of that, I really started to get very just infatuated by the, the story that I said, this has to be my first movie. And I have to put it all into that. And so it was a long battle to get it made. But fortunately, you know, I attracted the interest of a great production company, Traveling Picture Show, um, NGG Films, uh, Kevin Mattisau, Carissa Buffell, Gia Walsh. They came on as producers in late 2018, early 2019 and developed this thing with me for uh, about a year. You know, we went out to cast the movie at the beginning of 2020, um, right at the beginning of the pandemic. So, you know, it was tough to see at that point when we would actually start shooting this thing. Like everything in the world, we were in limbo, but I began preparing with my team, you know, when we would just start storyboarding and putting all kinds of prep together. Um, and, you know, Tom Pelfrey was joined the cast in June, 2020. And we ended up filming that fall um, with a cast that really exceeded, you know, I, and I, I dream big. I think you have to, as a filmmaker, but I could not have imagined we would get this cast, you know, with Tom, with Brian, with Adina, Jackie, Moises, Chantel. I mean, it's just, it's it, to have that on your first movie. Isn't something that happens often, especially a movie that, you know, is, is an indie film. So it was yeah. just a really incredible experience um, to get to make this when we did at the height of the pandemic in Utah. Um, but I, I, yeah, I'm really proud that we got, I'm really happy we got to, and I'm proud of the final film. No, the the final film is, is very compelling. I, I was instantly drawn in, uh, even from the very earliest scenes when we, you, you know, you don't really know what's going on. You just see this character. Uh, we learn soon enough that it's uh, Jason Derrick Brown. He's pulling up into a pawn shop. Uh, you can tell he's got something on his mind. He's He's kind of intense. Uh, but then he gets out of the car and you just see the expression on his face melt into something much more approachable kind of you know jovial and you know, gregarious he, he's not he, at this point he's not the life of the party guy that he will be become later on in different contexts but he's he's kind of maneuvering his his body language his facial expression to make a transaction and in other words he's just, he's establishing yeah. credentials as a con man right to a pawn shop not only just Change some jewelry, but to give the kind of heart wrenching sob story that's going to get right. the guy on his side, and uh, just it, it is is that that image of of uh, of Tom Pelfrey kind of just changing something about his kind of inner essence uh, to to go into that character. That's like okay, we're we're in the presence of a, a very slick operator here, and that right. and that and it just kind of took off from there. Uh, so, you know, some interesting things about the making of the film. I, I do want to maybe establish a little bit more about that story, then maybe come back to some of the casting, because I was also very impressed by by the the, the, the talent that, that was assembled for this project. So, you know, you, you talk about uh, Jason Derrick Brown. Uh, what he did, you know, was obviously a pretty brutal act. He, he shot uh, an armored car transport driver who had a bag full of cash, broad daylight right in front of a cineplex movie theater in arizona got got away with it and kind of disappeared you know he's never been uh pursued or always been pursued but he's never been apprehended since then so he, he killed one person took some money what is it that made him such a wanted fugitive i mean there's lots of people who have done holdups 
killed people. Right. What made Jason so you know highly sought after by the FBI? You know that I think I'd have to ask the FBI. Yeah. yeah okay. Sure. I yeah. think you know. I mean, look. I think there's so there's a lot of reasons for that why he could have became a top ten. I mean, I think the fact that they never found him. I think mm-hmm. that you know there's also. I mean it speaks to some of the, and one of the themes of the movie of American murder is the records Jason left behind. Yes. You you have these photographs he takes of himself, the videos, um, you know, it's like things like the boat party scene that we shot that was modeled after a real video that he made, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or the photographs of him posing in like front of cars or, or, houses or you know because jason put out an image in many ways he was an influencer before the thing existed he was somebody who really like you know enjoyed putting himself himself out there into the world in this you know narcissistic way not saying influencers are narcissistic but you know he had that kind of putting himself out there mentality um you know there were people who compared him to figures like logan paul you know um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who when they read the script said that and and I never even thought about that consciously at all. I, you know, I just was reading what I saw. But yeah. the um, so I think there's something about him, you know, just Jason's smirk to me. If I'm an FBI agent, <laughs> is almost like a middle finger, you know. Yeah, to you. Like, yeah. It just kind of gets under your skin. You just mm-hmm. want to get this guy. And 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 Ryan Philippe exactly. as the agent, agent, you sort of get that. It's 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 yeah. it's becomes personal at a certain point, right? It does. And he's obsessed with him, and you know he can't. You know, and, and the real, I, you know, he can't catch him. And that's a yeah. hard thing, you know, because yeah, as so. an agent, you certainly want to, you know, pursue justice. You want to bring closure to the victim and their family and, and you know, all the people who were affected by uh, not just this one crime. Obviously, that was the most sensational crime that Jason committed. But there were other things he did along the way. Um, and so. Yeah, just this this whole web that he gets caught up in and the encounters between him and his family members, his siblings, uh, that the, the playing back and forth with the trust, uh, the, yeah. the incredibly uh, memorable encounter that he has with his mother. He's a, a few of them, but that first one where he comes in, again, wanting to schmooze his mom, get yeah. 20000 for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity he wants to hook <laughs> her up with. Like, oh, my gosh. Right. <laughs> and, of course, she just tears right through it. I mean, she's his mother. She knows him. She knows what he's about. Uh, yeah. But, again, another fantastic performance by, uh, what was her name, Jackie... Jackie, Jackie Weaver. Weaver, yeah. yeah. Uh, again, a, a, a small role, but but really unforgettable. And uh, you know, I I could just relate to certain situations that I've been through in my life and family members. And I think that's where a lot of viewers may find themselves connecting with this film. You, you've you've met somebody like like Jason in your life. Maybe right. there's a little bit of Jason in you. You know, as you sort of you know hustle and and kind of elevate yourself for whatever reason to make a deal to make an impression to to get popularity influence like you said i certainly saw that that this character is kind of speaking to our own times it wasn't that long ago but right. uh, he does seem to be made for the kind of social media i'm living the dream don't you wish you were me type of a uh, totally. you know, projected image there yeah, you know, I think that's beautifully said, you know, and the, the scene you're talking about with, with Jackie Weaver, you know, who's, why oh, was she an incredible actress um, mm-hmm. and just a tour de force um, and one of the nicest people and most yeah. down to earth human beings. But, you know, she's a true artist. She's been around for, mm-hmm. I think she's been acting for 56 years. She and, was actually in Picnic um, with Hanging Rock. I saw on her right. uh, 
filmography there. So that's a pretty impressive credential going back a few decades there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, she's, you know, was part of the big Australian new wave. And, you know, just had an incredible career, worked with all, you know, so many great directors. Um, you know, when that scene, I think, is really crucial, it's the longest scene in the movie, mm. um, which is interesting to think mm-hmm. about in terms of page count, sheer page okay. count. But, um, yeah. you know, and the scene is crucial because, you know, the whole design of American Murderer is that you're seeing Jason through all these different lenses. So you're seeing Jason through Adina's perspective, who saw him as a love interest, a romantic mm-hmm. hero. You're mm-hmm. seeing him through his brother, who kind of is like a father figure to him. You know, you're seeing him through his sister who has a shifting view of him throughout the movie. And then you're seeing him through his mother who sees him exactly as who he is. (laughs) You know, she Mm -hmm, sees him right there. mm -hmm. So she, in a way, a con man's worst nightmare is the person who can see right through them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And so that scene for him is really, I think, really powerful because there's a lot of friction between them. And, you know, when I was shooting that scene, um, you know, it's interesting. I think the scene was shot pretty late in the schedule. Um, we had one day to do all of Jackie Weaver scenes. Um, so, you know, we were filming it quite quick, but it was, you know, I, I hate to say it, but like, cause directing is a really hard job. You know, it's, mm-hmm. there's a lot mm-hmm. to think of and, you know, making a movie is hard. Making a first movie is hard and making a movie in COVID is very hard. Anyone mm-hmm. that. <laughs> yeah. I always said by comparison, well, even if I try to make Lawrence of Arabia next, it's going to be easy because of all the restrictions we had, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, just yeah. shooting with masks and, and not being able to have, you know, a lot of extras and all that, you know, so there was all these obstacles. But when you shoot a scene with people like Tom Pelfrey and Jackie, who are just dialed in and, mm-hmm. you know, really what you're doing as a director, I mean, obviously, you know, everything's very consciously designed shots are chosen like you know there, there's patterns and, and all that but you i really felt like i was getting out of their way and just letting mm-hmm. these two go because mm-hmm. you know i wasn't going in and whispering things you know what i mean because <laughs> we just when you have someone like tom and you have someone like jackie the, they and that scene really goes like if you were to emotionally graph that scene <laughs> it kind of would start here it goes up here it goes down and it's a lot, kind of like music and the two of them really took what I wrote and they elevated it by light years. And I just felt lucky to be sitting behind the camera or right in their eyeline. Uh, yeah. Sometimes their chagrin and capturing the magic. Um, it was a special, special thing. It, it was very powerful because, you know, in that encounter between mother and son, there'd also been a period of years between their last contacts. And I think you could maybe read into it that Jason was, was avoiding that contact because he knew that, uh, in a way, she kind of deflates his own con, and if he doesn't believe his own con, then it's not going to go anywhere, right? He's got to he's got to yeah. sell it to himself as much as he's got to sell it to everybody else, and she well, makes him know, do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because at the end of the day, it's like I said, on the surface, it's a cat and mouse thriller, and it's you know, there's themes of the dark side of the American dream and all mm-hmm. that. But at the core, mm-hmm. this is a movie about family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how I that's how I saw it. Not necessarily at first when I started writing it, I was attracted to the pulpy crime elements and, and all that fun stuff of con men yeah. and con artists and you know that. But when I really got down to it, and that's you know in the constant rewriting of the script and like doing those multiple drafts to get it you know, to feel right, it really emerged to me that at least the emotional center of the film was that this was a film about family because Jason and his family. That's where the tension's coming from, his father disappeared and his mother is here and his, you know, the siblings in a way were kind of forced to raise each other, you know, yeah, yeah. everything that goes on. And so that's where I think, you know, and, and really, you know, I think Chantal Van Sant, who plays the sister is just, she's an excellent actress and 
mm-hmm. you know, that's, you know, that, that emotional relationship and how it develops throughout the course of the narrative is what ultimately I think keeps, you know, the audience engaged um, and, and watching Jason's evolution throughout the film. Yeah. Yeah. Jason's the one who's really kind of carrying his father's legacy on to that next generation, you yeah. know, the, yeah. the brother David and, and the sister Jamie they're you know, they haven't gone nearly as far down that road, but they, they still get caught up in it because in one sense they have to cover for their brother and others. I mean, they're, they're just products of their upbringing, their environment, uh, maybe just never believing that it's going to go quite as far as, as Jason takes it. But you're right. Yeah. It's, it's that, it's that the, 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 the conflict of, of emotions of, of, you know, standing by your, your kin, you know, your, your people, and yet he's crossed lines that just make that impossible. And you talked about uh, the character Melanie, played by Adina Menzel. Uh, even Jason's role as sort of a, a surrogate father to her own child. Her, you know, she's a right. single mom. She's got a son. Jason comes in with his video games and his kind of overgrown child swagger there. He's, you know, that, that scene of him and the boys uh, on their skateboards going down the road. Uh, yeah. Just a beautiful moment of this of this kind of, you know, kind of guy who hasn't in some sense broken out of his own adolescence just palling yeah. around with these kids and of course winning the confidence of this beautiful woman who's also his landlord <laughs> right across right. the street it's a very right. very interesting tangle of relationships there all throughout the film uh so i wanted to ask about this too it sounds like you did a lot of research obviously how much access did you have to people who knew him uh, tell us just a little about some of the some of the research and process you went through to kind of give this story the the ring of truth yeah and you know without naming names directly because i'd rather mm-hmm. not have people you sure. know i did i did a lot of interviews um you know i met i did i well first off the first step is i read everything i could get my hands on that was publicly mm-hmm. available to me um you know, which wasn't a ton at the time. Um, but there were a lot of documentaries on him, things like that. So, and I reached out to the people who made some of those documentaries and I, I picked a lot of brains. Um, and I did meet some people who knew him. Um, you know, the movie is, I would call it true crime fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Meaning okay. that it's based on a true story and there are a lot of true things in it, but I did dramatize things to, you know, cause real life and narrative don't always play out hand in hand and so you know you have have to make some things up to get things along but you know i pursued truth Mm -hmm. not uh accuracy is what i would say on that um but you know i did interview people who knew him some of whom were intimate with him and and all of that so that's Mm -hmm. where you know a lot of that came from and there were a lot of facts that did inspire certain things or you know so the scene when he asked his friend to rob an armored truck uh play by moisarius that was based on some anecdotes I'd heard. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, th- there was a lot of things I was digging from and I, I did a lot of deep dive research into it. Um, just learning as much as I could about his past, his upbringing, you know, where he grew up, all of that. There's, there's a great story of Frank Pearson when he wrote dog day afternoon, uh, the real Sonny was getting beat up in prison because some stuff in the movie apparently was mm. made up. Mm. And Frank Pearson wrote a letter to, uh, <laughs> Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wrote a letter publicly and said, I made this stuff up that I am the dramatist, you know, yeah, yeah. Do that. and that's something you have to factor in when you do make movies that are based on true events, you know, is that mm-hmm. people are alive and going to see it, you know, Lance Slicing will see himself portrayed by Ryan, but I hope that, you know, they, one, I hope they can watch the film and, and enjoy it and, and understand that I tried to be as honest and authentic as possible, you know, I'm really, you know, my whole intention always was to put a human being on screen, not right. put a, you know, a quote unquote monster. Um, right. 
you know, and I see, you know, I don't think I could write Jason Derrick Brown. I don't think Tom Pelfrey could play Jason Derrick Brown if he went at the, as well as he did without seeing this person as a human being first and foremost, even if they did do something incapable. And I think that's what's so interesting about film, the kind of films we love. You know, you look at mm-hmm. Rainer Werner Fassbender's work, oh, yeah. you look at Martin Scorsese's work, or you look at, you know, Fellini's work or Kurosawa's work. I mean, these are filmmakers who really deep dive examine the human condition and ask you questions about what it means to be a human on this planet. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be, you know, a criminal, a con man, and art, you know, all of those things. And so I like, you know, I live in the area of moral gray. Moral ambiguity. And I, you know, I don't really like things that aren't that um, personally, mm-hmm. that, you know, it's just my mm-hmm. taste. So, you know, yeah. So it, it was, it's an interesting thing to do, but um, yeah, I, well, I, I hope they to... like it. And I said, yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. If let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about Tom Pelfrey. Just as I've already said, a lot hinges on what he brings. And I think he, he, he really you know, elevates everything. Uh, what was it like working with him and, and how did he get into that character? Was this a, a situation where he just read the script? It clicked with him. Did you and he work together collaboratively? I mean, what was that process like? Because like I yeah. say, so, so much comes out of the way he, shifts and modulates his his tone his emotions you know wild you know stars in his eyes party boy grim killer hype con man i just the whole range is there and he he really you know brings it all out how did that how did that all unfold yeah um well so you know tom was brought to me by my producer gia wall she called me in april 2020 and she said are you watching ozark and I said, mm-hmm. I wasn't. Um, and she mm-hmm. said, well, you need to. And then in the same day, my brother called me and my one of my best friends, who's a talent agent, he called me as well. And they both said, are you watching Tom Pelfrey on Ozark? He's perfect for your movie. He's your and guy. <laughs> I said, right. okay, I need to like go and watch this. And at the second I started watching it, I realized, oh, I have seen him before and things. Mm-hmm. And I'd mm-hmm. seen him in some indie films. And I was like, oh yeah, that guy is really a great actor. And it was a little bit of watching him in Ozark that I realized, Oh, he was totally perfect for Jason because you know, the actor who plays Jason has to make you love this guy. Yeah. Even though he does despicable things in the movie. Mm -hmm. And Tom immediately had that quality. It was very clear within five seconds. The actor I always said he reminded me of. um, And I told this to him many times, you know, was that he reminded me of Toshiro Mifune. He just has this Mm -hmm. physicality to him. He's very Mm -hmm. dynamic. And something Kurosawa said about Toshiro Mifune was that he could convey in five seconds what it took most actors two minutes to do. And I felt that way with Tom. He was just very physically dynamic, um, you know, to the point where a lot of shots I had, me and my cinematographer, Khalila Robinson, we'd plan them on longer lenses. But then when we saw Tom moving about the space and the way that he did with such physicality, we realized we had to widen out to capture it. Um, and so that's why sometimes you see like wider angle lenses up close because he would just do such interesting things, especially like in the Jackie scene. Mm. Um, so to answer your question, he came into, you know, we sent him the script um, and I knew that he liked it enough to meet me. And we talked okay. on, a, you know, we talked on like a two hour zoom. Um, about all kinds of things about the screenplay and how it related to him. He saw some of my shorts, um, you know, and I know he wanted to do it um, initially, but I think he was, you know, assessing where, whether or not he could. And, you know, he was in a very 
incredible spot in his career with Ozark dropping at that moment. Uh, you know, so I know the first time director maybe <laughs> was not the most, you know, crazy thing to do at yeah. that time. But, yeah. you know, I we had a couple more talks. He had some, you know, questions about the script, not a lot, but he did give some really good feedback and input and I made changes right away, you know, um, to accommodate what he was saying. Because, you know, Tom's really smart as an actor. He's not, you know, you know and I think all of them, all the actors in this cast are smart actors because, you know, Aaron Sorkin's as good actors, actors cannot fake smart. And Tom just had really good story ideas and things like that, that I did incorporate, not too many, but you know, a few. And then once he attached, we had a very easy way of working where, you know, it was the, it was COVID before the shoot, we were still in the pandemic, you know, summer 2020, but we would, you know, meet once a week or every couple of weeks on zoom and we would just, I would give him the opportunity to, you know, look at the script with me, read it out loud. You know, I would strip, I stripped away all the action lines from the script and just so we could look at the dialogue and see how it flowed and see how it felt, give him a chance to ask him questions, see if there's anything he was uncomfortable. And it wasn't really necessarily rewriting things a lot. It was just, and we did this with other actors eventually too, once they came on board. And we just did it to get, you know, to allow him to get under the words and really start unpacking things and, and, you know, you could see his mind working. I mean, it was, you know, it was really special, but it was very light and just light on its feet and just felt like, you know, I'd see him saying the line five times, <laughs> just mm-hmm. yeah, that would give me an inspiration for a shot or an angle. Um, mm-hmm. And he was very generous to give me that time because, you know, rehearsal is not exactly a luxury you get on a first movie. Right. But, um, we know, we did do a lot of Zoom rehearsals. And by the time he got there on set, he was so dialed in and prepared. The first thing we filmed was the boat party. Um, oh, that was, okay. that was, that yeah. was day one of filming and hmm. <laughs> not the best, not the smartest first time directors out there. Maybe don't start with something so hard because we got out on, on the water. Yeah. yeah on right. the, water. <laughs> the wind was blowing us 45 miles in a circle an hour. I mean, it was crazy. It was absolutely nuts. Um, but we went in we filmed it and he was so like, you know, that seems very crazy. And he just, arrived. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he's he was, just, in manic just, mode there yeah yeah and there were just things he started doing it was actually a much longer scene in the original cut and mm-hmm. script and we, we ended up trimming it down but you know he, he like the pull-ups he does on the boat he just started doing mm-hmm. that you know, mm-hmm. wasn't scripted or anything yeah. like that so you know what's exciting about working with tom and someone like him is he he constantly surprises you you know he would come in and he will you know it might be it might read in the scene that jason opens the fridge and takes out a beer tom will take that and do something completely like yeah with some kind of flair you know, or style yeah yeah he'll put his hand on the ceiling in a way or he'll like look at him you know he'll just add something he's constantly looking to make it better and you know when you're a first-time director or any kind of director i think you you thank your lucky stars you have someone like that who is just so dialed in and prepared you know he was so prepped he knew he knew everything and well i didn't this, really have to yeah. tell him too much yeah. honestly you know I, yeah. there wasn't that much uh me coming in being like try it this way or try you know that wasn't like you know there were adjustments every now and then which there always are but no i really trusted him uh yeah to do the role right and he i'm glad i did (laughs) well he he seemed to have an intuitive grasp of it i mean even even 
small moments. The scene I'm thinking of where he's at that club and he's at the bar. He meets this beautiful blonde woman. They they share a, a toast, a cheer. But then he looks up the stairs and he sees a couple of beautiful women behind the velvet rope there. And it's like, okay, he's going to make his way to the VIP. Yeah, and yeah. he just he just storms right in there and he just owns it, you know? And it's like most mere mortals would just shrink. Hey, I'm out of my league here. He just plows <laughs> right in. And, 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 and Tom Pelfrey knows how to, how to make that happen. That he's, he's larger than life. Almost totally. any time he's in the spotlight, if there's other people around that he wants to make the impression, he just ratchets it up that extra level. And, yeah. And uh, some of those, yeah. some of those scenes, greatest lines came from his improv. I okay. mean, there, there was a version yeah, of that yeah. scene that was like 10 minutes long because uh-huh. he just, you know, we, he just would go and go and go. And, you know, I, I really like when I sometimes when I watched him, I not a big influence, but on it's not an influence on this movie per se, but it's one of my favorite films is a woman under the influence. John Costner. Oh, sure. Okay. And I always yeah. I always thought like the genius, I think, of that film is how Casavetti's got Jenna Rallins to feel that comfortable mm-hmm. that she could go there. You know, yeah. I think that's like what's so special about them and why it holds up, you know, 50 years later, almost. It's just, yeah. you know and I felt that way watching Tom. Like he was just so able to go unhinged and go for it, you know, and he would really, there was no limit on that guy. And like the club scene was a great example of that. He was was riffing and some of the best lines come from that. Like the, you know, the Buffalo bills line and the John Wayne line. He had, he he added that in because he was feeding off the guy, you know, the guy was the first time actor and, and he was like a dentist or something. And Tom like grabbed his arm and like mimicked his body language. And it was really just that it was a thrill to watch. And we would be, we would shoot that and we call cut and the whole crew would laugh, would die laughing. <laughs> there was a funny yeah, anecdote yeah. where he, um, that scene when the guy's like, he goes and says, like grabs his wallet after, um, when we first shot that Tom leaned into his face and started saying all this stuff. And the guy just completely broke and cracked up. And the take. <laughs> and he was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. Because he didn't know what Tom was going to do. Um, but yeah, no, he's, yeah, he's an incredible ad libber and improver and, and that helped a lot. Let's talk about the title of the film. You could have called this any number of things american murderer um there's there's a pretty impressive uh sort of legacy of, of films with the name american in the title american right. psycho american hustle american graffiti american right. splendor i mean i could probably go on and on what where did you settle on that name and and what do you think this 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 film has to say about uh, america or a, as a culture as a phenomenon as a state of mind right you know it's it's a great question and Unfortunately, my answer is not that interesting. Um, <laughs> the reason why I call it American Murder, or I titled it American Murder upon the first draft of the script, because um, okay. titles for me often change. But and I'm not my you know titles are not one of my biggest strong suits, but they're hard. You know, getting a good picking a good title for a movie is challenging. Um, and for me, a movie, I don't know, like. I, I kind of believe a title should not necessarily say exactly what a film is, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to out any movies, but you know, for me, like when a title's like, you know, it's like, it's called like the, the chase, you know, or whatever yeah. it's, in. it's, <laughs> right, in. it's a right. chase. Like I like yeah. when a title has some kind of irony to it. That's always my, mm-hmm. my favorite titles. And, um, but the reason for this title and it always stuck was when you go on Wikipedia and you type in the name Jason Derrick Brown or 
James Egan Holmes or anyone, it says American murderer. Hmm. Oh, okay. And that was, and that was really? it. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, and I do think though, there is something interesting about that because the movie is about his identity, family, all, mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. these complex themes. And yet he does this thing and that's how we, that is how he's, that's, that's it. He's the American murderer. Yeah. So and, and that's, that's really what it was. You know, okay. I didn't see the film as a statement necessarily on America. I mean, of course, you know, if you make a film set in America, you are inadvertently saying something about mm-hmm. America, but I didn't see the specific statement on that per se. You know, this is just, we're telling a story that, you know, that happened and allowing you as an audience to come to whatever feelings you want to have on it. On Jason was and the web he left behind and all that. But mm-hmm. the irony of, yeah, him being labeled, the American murderer, which he is, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if it mm-hmm. still is that way, but it was for a while. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, that's what inspired that title. Well, and it was interesting because, uh, you know, nothing against people named Jason or with the last name Brown, but, you know, he even plays off that the Jason Brown. I mean, right. it's almost a generic type of name. And then there's a pretty memorable exchange when he's being hunted down by one of his, uh, you know, one of the people he owes money to and he, he blows them off. Like, you know how many Jason Derrick Browns there are out there? And he even ties in a, a guilt trip about nine uh, 11 in there. It's like, yeah. wow, this guy is, he's like prepped for whatever, you know, scramble he's got to get into to, to evade accountability and, and probably what he deserves. So yeah, I, that's I just pretty, some, yeah. yeah, that's a sinister scene. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and one of my favorites. That story actually was interesting because it came from. It was a, there was a debt collector who was telling their story of what mm. made them because debt collectors, especially in that time period, were known to be quite ruthless and sure. accosting of people. Mm-hmm. And there was a debt collector who apparently quit because someone told them their brother had died on nine eleven. Yeah, wow. And so I took that and I made that a con. Um, yeah, Jason's character, but yeah, it was a uh, that was quite a scene. <laughs> that scene ended up being filmed in one take, which was not originally the intention, but mm. you know, I found that it was nice to just let it breathe. just going. And yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think you know, again, this is a story that's set in in the recent memory of most people who would be watching it. Uh, but it was it was a time where <laughs> I'm not going to get nostalgic for the early 2000s, but it does feel like life was a little simpler and, and some of the, the lines that uh, are drawn between that era and now, you know, they've just intensified even more, but uh, the character seems like a bit of a forerunner of the era that we've kind of entered into culturally. So I felt, yeah, this is actually a pretty good choice of a title. Uh, he's not the biggest, baddest, you know, mastermind criminal you've ever seen, but it's his, it's his very ordinariness uh, as well as just uh, how much of this was driven by kind of a quest for identity, notoriety, uh, creating an impression or an image of, of something that's not really there but is at least persuasive enough to, to pull his next mark along with him. You know, uh, yeah, you know, he's not a guy who's just completely cynical. Um, you know, he's not, you know, completely heartless. I think there's, there's a, an element, at least the character in this film that, that wants to connect, that wants to enjoy life and, and live it to the fullest. It's yeah. just the opportunity to do so legitimately doesn't present itself to him. So he's going to find that, quick route to success 
sex, fame, glory, uh, and and the good life. You know that that you know the the fun, the the pleasure, the hedonism. And so I felt, yeah, there, there, this is a character study that I think has some depth and some resonance. It's not just the story of how a guy got away with killing somebody in a bag right. of cash. Well, and I think what you're what you're tapping on is part of the fun of a story of someone who's a con man. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it allows you to ask the question. I get this question a lot when I show the movie to people and they see it. You know, what was real? Did he really yeah. love <laughs> Adina's character? Yeah. Did he yeah. not? Did he just not care about her? Did he care about the kid at all? Did he, you know, how did he feel? And I, I love that the film makes you ask those questions. Yeah, and does, but it doesn't spoon feed you the answer. It doesn't resolve it for you. Right, because, well, because yeah, I don't think anyone does have the, you know, who knows? Right, you know, like right. my interpretation of it is one thing, Tom's interpretation of it could be another. And then the, you know, and there's, I, I have a great directing, writing coach named Judith Weston who mm-hmm. works with a lot of actors. And she wrote, she wrote the, you know, King book on directing actors and something she says a lot is, you know, she always says there's three possibilities and more. So a line can have three different subtexts at least, and you can always have more. And so there's three different choices an actor can take. You could play the scene like Tom doesn't care about anybody in the movie. Mm-hmm. Right. And that might be one version. I don't think that's a very interesting version. Right. You know, there could be a version where he absolutely does. Right. And so, you know, playing it that way. I mean, you know, and something I heard about my favorite movie I brought up earlier, Dog Day Afternoon, was apparently what clicked for Al Pacino when he played Sonny was he realized this was a guy who was trying to please everybody. And for Jason, I always saw him as someone, you know, in terms of what they call a spine in drama. I always saw his spine as he, this guy wanted to be liked by everybody. That's yeah. how I saw it. And that's what was driving it. So Matthew, you've been touring this film around. You've done some festivals. Um, yeah, what's that experience been like as you've kind of realized this ambition? You got your first feature. I know you you have some short films. Maybe we could talk a little bit about sort of you know, the, the lead up to your career that got you to this point. But, but how is it feeling right now as you see uh, the film about to kind of reach a much broader audience? It's been incredible. You know, I... Um have been very lucky the the world premiere was at the Terramina film fest in sicily uh that was our first public screening of it It was Mm. in a palazzo theater you know that's built hundreds of years ago and it it was a very incredible premiere we i got to meet francis for coppola there he opened the festival godfather and then i opened the official oh like the 50th anniversary restoration (laughs) yeah okay that was that was the opening night event they showed that in a amphitheater built in 300 bc um, Unbelievable. I, got to, I, I wow. had the opportunity to meet him and uh, ask him questions about Kurosawa and, um, you know, his experience knowing him and Amazing. talked to him for half an hour, me and my brother, um, who my brother was the composer of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the movie, you know, really feels like a family affair in that my brother's the composer, my classmate, Kalila Robinson, or she's actually a class below me, but my teammate, Kalila Robinson, I met from film school at the AFI, same with my editor, Matt Allen. And my editor, Christopher Young, you know, we all went to AFI together. So it's really all of, and you know, my producers I've known now for like well over three years and have worked with me so closely. So, you know, it really does feel like a family affair in a lot of ways. Um, you know, you become a family with your film that you make with your team. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's a world premiere there. That was in June. That was incredible. Um, and just to see the response it got from both the press screening and the audience. Um, was really gratifying and special to know that it could hit a nerve in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So a movie, American murder will travel. Um, <laughs> and uh, now coming back, you know, we, 
have a few more festivals coming up in the US before we release. I mean, there might be some after internationally. So it's really nice. I feel very lucky to have a great partner in Saban Films uh, who took this movie on for distribution, was very passionate about it, and they've been really great about getting this thing out there and getting it eyeballs on it and uh have just been really easy and great to work with and this is my first time working with a distributor at all and it's been incredible so far so no i feel very lucky and and blessed to have this experience um you know and to get to have made this movie the way i wanted to make it and that's you know because i had great producers and a great team who backed me and stuck their necks out for me and yeah yeah because i gotta tell you people don't often run to give a first-time director a job <laughs> they're they're not you know right. it's uh, it takes uh you know that the first-time director is always a leap of faith um you know both from the director themselves but also the people who finance it so these people really believed in me and my vision and mm-hmm. you know and my team and uh you know i feel very lucky to have had that and you know the shorts that I made both at AFI and before helped kind of get me to this point. Um, mm-hmm. And now it's exciting. Cause yeah, soon, you know, as of this airing, it'll be out there for people to yeah. see. And you know, that's yeah. uh, both cool and scary. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and are you able to talk a little bit about um, what's coming down the road? Obviously you're still in kind of, you know, the middle of the process of rolling out this film, getting it to audiences, you know, doing interviews like this one and, and, uh, making sure that American murderer finds this audience. Uh, what else you got in the works that you're able to talk about? Yeah. Um, I have my second feature, uh, written that I'm now going out with and scouting mm-hmm. for and prepping to shoot hopefully next year. Um, it's yeah. a true crime drama also, um, called the socialite. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we get into that at the beginning at the, t- at, uh, late next year. Um, I have other scripts as well that I've written and, you know, directing, scripts that i've been reading so to possibly come direct so you know it's an open book at this point but i have a i have a pretty clear path of what i want to do next and that's to film the social life well that's fantastic well well matthew anything else you want to talk about while we've got some time here uh, you know this has been a very enjoyable conversation certainly i will be tracking your career as you go on from here and i've really appreciated this chance to get to know you hear more about this project but uh, yeah any any final comments before we wind, wind things up here for me as well uh, it's been great do you want to um i'm just trying to think if there's anything you would need i uh, you know i could talk well, a little bit about some criterion yeah. films if you want. <laughs> well, yeah, I think we'll probably keep this episode focused, but yeah, definitely want to get you on my, my program soon. Um, and for those of you who maybe don't know what I do at criterion cast, uh, my program's called criterion reflections. I've been a, a movie blogger, just, just a kind of a hobby since 2009. And at that, that, that year, I kind of came up with this scheme of, I'm just going to work my way through the criterion collection in chronological order. And so I started as a blog, I would just write reviews of these films that I'd been sort of collecting for a while. And this was kind of a way for me to not only, you know, kind of preserve my impressions of the film, but also just kind of motivate me to focus up and, and research it and, and really just dig deep into these outstanding movies that the Criterion Collection makes available to us, and especially with all the special features and all of that. Uh, This turned into a podcast back in, I think, 2016, 2017, and I'm up to the year 1972, so I've been very methodically working my way through these films, and like, you know, uh, Matthew mentioned an episode about Pasolini earlier. We just did an episode on 
the Canterbury Tales, uh, the middle film of his trilogy of life. So uh, CriterionCast.com is our website. Uh, just basically, it's a place where we publish a lot of things related to the Criterion Collection. One of our reviewers, Josh Brunsting, also does a lot of uh, reviewing about independent art house films, international cinema, etc. So CriterionCast.com is a resource that's got over you know, 10, 12 years of, of pretty cool archival material. Uh, you know, we don't do a lot of advertising. We basically just like to share our love of film with the audiences. And my program usually gets different guests on with, with various backgrounds. Like, like I say, for myself, I'm just a hobby guy. I just do this because I love movies and I love talking about them. But it's really always a thrill to talk to people like yourself, Matthew, and our fr- mutual friend, Robert, who's in the screenwriting business so out there in Hollywood. People who are making the films uh, that we'll be talking about for years from now. And so it's a, it's a real pleasure for me just to kind of learn a little bit more about how this industry works and, and the people behind uh, the films that we enjoy so much. Oh, it's a pleasure for me as well. So, so Matthew, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the films maybe that, that inspired or informed uh, the making of American Murderer, whether they're criterion related or not. Uh, what would you like to recommend to listeners to maybe get a little bit more context to appreciate the film that you've put out before us? Absolutely. Um, I'm going to recommend three. Uh, for you and your listeners so three criterion films that were absolutely essential to the making of american murderer one was the film vengeance is mine directed by shohei imamura uh i think a total masterpiece i saw this film at the new beverly cinema in uh, 2013 when i first moved out to los angeles and it completely blew my mind um it was a movie that came on the screen and made an audience laugh weep and root for a serial killer in Japan. <laughs> yeah. and i just walked out of that theater and i said to myself i want to do that <laughs> to mm, an audience mm, mm-hmm. um and that movie proved to me that a movie like american murderer could exist i can't imagine how hard Shohei Imamura had to push to get that film made but mm. thank god he did because it's a masterpiece um so that would be one film the other film is uh the honeymoon killers was also mm. a huge influence for me um sure just such an unflinching uh excellent film that you know it's so disturbing psychologically and emotionally in terms of what it's about this you know couple that goes on a killing spree yet Mm -hmm. and yet despite how disturbing it is there's no graphic violence (laughs) it's all off screen but it's It's, horrifying sometimes it's just the audio the sound effect or the mind's eye picture of what's happening in that other room horrifying final scenes in a film um, that I know we've talked about in your proximity mm-hmm. to the house where some of it happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Just for listeners, I'll say I did a, a podcast episode about that film a couple years ago. And in the research, I found out that the I think it was the final killing in that spree took place just a few miles from my own home. So talk about true crime. I've actually driven by the lot on the street where that, that occurred. And I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to listen to that episode and hear more about that little teaser for you. Great. <laughs> and what's your third film? Yeah. And for th- for, so I'm going to cheat. I'm going to put two films in the third slot. But okay. the first one is going to be one that's not on Criterion, but it should be. And I have been writing Criterion for like <laughs> six years straight to please induct this film to the Criterion Channel. That's Bob Fosse's film, Star 80, starring mm. Eric Roberts, oh. which I think is another masterwork um, mm-hmm. You know that got completely overlooked at its time, vilified because it was a true crime film that told a story about, you know, necrophilia, yeah. which is not exactly uh, mm-hmm. fun watching, but it is a movie that 
for the first hour and a half just has one tone and then goes in a completely different direction. Mm. Eric Roberts gives the performance, I think, of a lifetime. I do liken Tom's performance in this movie to that. Mm. Um, I just think that they, you know, it's a, it's a similar type of unhinged, incredibly complicated and fun character to watch, but also someone who's deeply disturbing. Um, so Star 80, highly recommend Bob Fosse film. But it's not a criterion, so you just have to find the DVD somewhere. The last Criterion film, I will say, I did not see it while I was making American Murderer, but I absolutely should have. Um, was recommended to me by Imogen Smith, who you've probably seen mm-hmm. for you Criterion yep. fans all over the Criterion sure. channel. She and I met for coffee recently, and she gave me a list of films to watch that I will be working through for probably the next 10 years. Um, and she recommended me Purple Noon by Renee Clement. And oh yeah it yeah. is just a masterwork um and elaine delon's character in the film is so interesting and mm-hmm. you know layered and it's the original talented mr ripley um which is yep. also a great film um but purple new was really special to me i was seeing that recently just made me real i'm glad i didn't see it before american murder now because i think it would have been like i could never hit that bar but it's just such a remarkable film beautifully yeah. filmed uh incredible depictions of food and uh, usage of that in, in, in images and it's just a real masterwork so highly recommend purple noon star 80 vengeance is mine and the honeymoon killers uh especially the the first three i mentioned you know without those i don't know that american murder would exist yeah so thank you to those movies for sure four great recommendations for the price of three <laughs> what a deal right well and speaking of image and yeah she has been a guest on one of our companion shows criterion now that's hosted by aaron west and jill blake so i've not made direct con- uh, you know contact with her but definitely appreciate what she does so much for the film community and then a purple noon you mentioned that that's another uh, podcast i'm actually going to be guesting on that program a couple oh, of cool. young women down in florida who we've connected online a few times and we're going to be talking about Pasolini's Mama Roma. So that's a little preview of what I've got coming up on my podcasting. Although I think that episode will already be out by the time this one hits the air. So yeah, well, Matthew, this has been an outstanding conversation, a really fun way to spend the evening. And I look forward to uh, connecting with you again down the road where we can just kind of dive into a Criterion movie or two and take it from there. Thank you, David. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about where they can find, where where viewers, uh, listeners can find uh, access to American Murderer. Um, So American Murder will be released in select theaters October 21st, and it will be out on demand and digital on October 28th. Please come see it. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. Uh, You know, um, I think you said it's going to be opening around 25 markets in its initial theatrical run there. Hopefully it'll catch on and expand and and, uh, make it to a theater near you. We will also have links in the show notes. So if you uh, you get this through your podcast feed, just go to CartierAndCast.com. And you'll find access to, you know, Matthew's website and maybe some other uh, kind of uh, historic context, you know, Wikipedia and other articles that kind of give a little bit more of the, uh, you know, the the story of uh, Jason Derrick Brown. So, listeners, thanks for hanging in there with us. And I hope to see the film. And we'll be talking to you all real soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, David.